up everyone i'm your host hubert in this podcast we interview richie and ryan founders of warp stream warp stream is a an apache kafka protocol compatible data streaming platform built directly on top of s3 it's delivered as a single stateless go binary so that there's no local disk to manage no brokers to rebalance and no zookeeper to operate we entered the interview with Rikshi providing the backstory of towards Stream's beginnings. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Rikshi, uh, co-founder of Warpstream. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've been working in distributed storage for, I think, over seven years now. Um, I, I spent a couple of years at Uber working on M3, which is Uber's open source metrics um, time series platform. Um, that technology eventually kind of was spun out and became the company known as Chronosphere. Um, and then, um, yeah, Ryan and I met um, while I was still at Uber. Um, we met at a conference in, um, was it Austin? Yeah, it was Percona Live 2019 in Austin, Texas. Yeah, Ryan was giving a talk about uh, Foundation DB, and I you know, had an interest in Foundation DB. Um, here, Ralph. Uh, and um, so I went and watched his talk. I recognized his voice from a podcast, went up and talked to him afterwards. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. We've been working together in one way or another ever since. Um, so uh, we, um, I, can, I can go into the history of it, but we, um, Ryan convinced me that we should try and build um, a distributed columnar store on top of S3, basically, for specifically designed for logging. Um, at the time, we called it Warp Table. Uh, we um, we were trying to raise money for that. Um, we got to the point where people were offering us like seed financing, um, but at the time, we didn't feel like we really knew what we were doing, like in terms of like how we would productize it. Um, you know, I'd never even worked at a B two B company before, um, so we ended up at Datadog um, with a team of uh, other Datadog engineers, um, and um, you know, that. There's a bit of an echo. Um, let me see if that's on my end. Maybe I can also. I think it's background noise for me. No, it's my colleagues, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, we ended up uh, deciding to go kind of build that system with other engineers at Datadog. Um, and that's the system that eventually became known as Husky. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I'm Ryan the other co-founder of Warpstream. My story basically overlaps with Richie's almost entirely. So there's not a lot that I can not a lot that I can add there. Um, I originally tried to convince him to work on the idea that we're calling Warpstream today, back when we were uh, like before Datadog, but he didn't find it quite so interesting at the time. He thought Kafka was super boring. Um, Uber didn't use it for the metric stuff that Richie worked on. So I don't think he had a lot of direct contact with it. Um, but after a few years of Datadog, we were very familiar with the with the pains of it. So he finds the problem a lot more interesting now. Cool. Um, <clears throat> so um, just could you give us a, like a quick overview of what Warp Stream is and your approach to uh, data streaming? Yeah, um, basically what Warpstream is, is a 
So it's a Kafka com protocol compatible system. Uh, and so what that means is that from like a user's perspective, we do our best to just essentially pretend to be a traditional Kafka cluster. Um, but in terms of the implementation, everything is basically completely different. Um, so it's like a, it's a complete essentially recreate from the ground up. Um, the way that we package it and like it presents to users is we give them a, basically a stateless Go binary that they put in their cloud account. So it's like a bring your own cloud model where we give you this binary, you put it in your cloud account, you point it at an S3 bucket of your choosing, but it doesn't have to be S3, any object storage compatible system will work. Um, and then the uh, agent binary and our cloud control plane essentially coordinate with each other um, to present the abstraction of a Kafka cluster. Um, but the, the big kind of benefits there are that essentially there are no local disks for anyone to manage. So, you know, even if you have like a fairly large cluster doing a gigabyte per second of, of volumes and stuff like that, um, you know, and you, you, know, you fat finger something and you go delete all your agents by accident or, or whatever it is, um, as long as you don't delete your object storage bucket, like all your data is safe and sound, you just turn the agents back on. Um, there's no consensus that runs in the customer account, so you don't have to deal with like, you know, raft groups or zookeeper or, or any of that stuff. Um, and then the other big thing, besides just it being easier in our view to operate, is um, the system avoids inner zone networking costs, basically at all costs. Um, so basically the agents will never transmit data from one availability zone to another without going through S3. Uh, and by doing that, we avoid basically the biggest cost of running Kafka and Kafka-like systems in the cloud, which is the cost of replicating data across availability zones. Oh, nice. Wow. Um, those are huge costs, right? Uh, so so, <clears throat> so by default, by since you're on S3, uh, you're already highly available um, as far as your data, right? Or, or is that... Yeah, S3 is a, um, it's a regional system. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you write to S3, it doesn't matter what availability zone you're in. I think they guarantee it won't be acknowledged until it's durable in at least two zones is the public. Yeah, I'm not sure if they publish the details about that, but the yeah. assumption is that like most other uh, regional AWS services, it should survive the, it should be available during the outage of an availability zone. Um, I, the published, Availability for S3, I think, is three nines, but I don't, I don't recall. But yeah, it it makes building a highly available system a lot easier if S3 is the the bottom layer of storage. So, so let's walk through. Because I used to work for Confluent, um, let's walk through like a deployment uh, and compare that to a, a simple like Kafka deployment, and, and think, let's compare that to what Warpstream is, is is deployed, how how it's deployed. So I have, let's say, like a three node. Uh, Kafka cluster, and I deploy that into three availability zones, right? Um, so I have a broker in, in, on each AZ, right? And they have, it's got local, local storage on each one. And when I write to one of those brokers, it replicates that data across to the other brokers, uh, the other AZs for durability. Okay. Um, so let walk me through a, what a uh, what a warp stream deployment would be. Would do you still have brokers on three availability zones? 
So you can deploy the WorpStream agent that we call it. It's like the mm -hmm. virtual broker. It's not we don't we call it agent, but uh, some people for prefer to use the term broker just to keep the okay. terminology one to one. Um, okay. So you can deploy the agent in as many availability zones as you'd like. You can deploy it in just one. You can deploy it in every availability zone. Um, it's it's up to you. But the important thing is that you deploy the agent in the same availability zone where your producers and consumers are. So if you're going to produce from three availability zones and consume from three, you should deploy the agent into all three zones so that you don't have any inner zone transit costs. Um, yeah. When you produce data to WorpStream, the agent buffers it in memory for a configurable period of time, but the default is 250 milliseconds. Then it flushes that data to S3 and sends a message to our cloud control plane that this file and all of the topic partitions that have been written in that file are now part of your stream or your, you know, your set of topics. Um, we only acknowledge the produce request once those two things have happened. So the file has been committed durably to S3 and the metadata for that file is in our cloud control plane. So at that point, that means also your consumers can read the data. Um, and if you go delete that agent immediately after the write has completed, any other agent can successfully serve the read for that file that you just wrote. So the, the agents are truly stateless. They do form a distributed cache amongst themselves in each availability zone to optimize the number of S3 get operations that your workload needs. If you can imagine that the, you're, you're producing to thousands of partitions um, for each agent, like each agent is receiving rights for thousands of partitions and we're grouping those all in one file the size of the read that you would do for one of the partitions is um, is fairly small. So the um, distributed cache, the way that it works is that when you read data from a workstream agent, we will read uh, four megabytes. We try to read four megabytes of data at a time. So that will be a, an that will be a, a significant overread for that workload where you're reading for uh, reproducing the thousands of partitions, and what that does is we cache that four megabyte block of data in memory on the agent, and then future reads that need to hit that same four megabyte section of the file will be served from cache, so that you don't have to do another get request for. It. That's basically the full end to end flow of producing and and consuming. Just to emphasize that a little bit more, so. On the produce path, there is no inner agent communication ever. Like it's directly to one agent, which then goes to writes to S3 and commits to our metadata store. And then on the read side, there is inner agent communication just to query that distributed cache, but the agents only cluster with other agents running in the same availability zone. And we, we handle that transparently for you. So the, the distributed cache, did that make you fully consistent. So what are you in the cap theorem? So WorkStream is a CP system in the cap theorem sense. Huh? The way that we produce 
files to S3. Uh, we never overwrite any objects. So when you are querying a file um, cached or uncached, the data for that file is always the same because we never overwrite anything. So it's perfectly fine to uh, cache that for as short or as long as, as you'd like, although the data will continue to be valid. In the background, the agents are performing compaction to optimize the data layout of the files in S3. Like you can imagine if you're producing a file every 250 milliseconds from each agent, that's a lot of small files, potentially, depending on your workload. So the agents do compaction in order to optimize the, the data layout. And those files that are the output of compaction will be written to new keys in the object store. So that future reads targeting uh, either the old file or the new file, um, they're both consistent from a caching perspective. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you'll just stop reading the old file and you'll start reading the new file because our metadata store, when some future fetch request comes and reads uh, that same range of offsets, the metadata store will now just point to a different file in the object store. And all object store implementations and the major cloud providers provide um, read your write semantics. So you don't, it's like once you've, a file has been acknowledged in object storage, you're guaranteed to be able to read it in any of the other zones, um, basically in all major clouds. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so what does the file look like on disk? Is it something that a consumer can start reading or does it need to consume it through warp stream to read that data? So today, our file format is just an implementation detail. Um, and we're not, it's not intended that the consumer of the data would ever directly read it from object storage. Um, it's not a very interesting file format, but it's just not uh, documented. The, we're thinking about in the future, exposing a Parquet interface so that mm -hmm you can optionally consume your stream as Parquet files, potentially, you know, the metadata for which would be delivered through like an iceberg table or something like that. Um, but we're, we're not there yet. Nice. Where, um, let's see here. Let, let's talk more about like your cost efficiency, right? Um, obviously the, the cross, AZ um, replication is is a huge savings. Um, what else is there? How else are you saving Kafka costs with Warframe? That's the it. The Kafka workloads come in like a lot of different shapes and sizes. It's like a very like multi. I mean, I'm sure you're aware, right? It's a very multi-dimensional problem based on retention, number of partitions, you know, all these things. Um, for high volume workloads, pretty much like someone's like. Like if you imagine like a logging workload, right? Where you're just like, you're ingesting logs from a bunch of machines or applications or IOT devices, right? And you need to buffer them temporarily before getting them into, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, or Snowflake or, or whatever it is, right? Um, that use case, the cost, if you're running in a cloud environment is almost completely dominated by these inner zone bandwidth costs. It'll, it'll represent like 90% of your costs um, and like for those workloads, the hardware costs of your of your Kafka cluster 
almost don't matter. Um, there are like, you know, if, if you're a huge, huge, huge company, um, you can negotiate some discounts on that inner AZ pricing, but even with those discounts, it's, it's a really significant portion of your costs. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, the, the kind of inverse of that I think is basically like very low, not doesn't have to be very, but low volume workloads, um, with like very high retention. That's like another really common use case we see, um, people are keeping like data in their Kafka clusters for like months or years because mm -hmm. it's this like permanent record of history. Um, for those, basically the dominating cost for your workload is just storage costs, right? Um, uh, if you have, um, you know, if you have really long-term retention, then you end up having a bunch of brokers that you're just adding more brokers. So you have more disk capacity and you're paying for, um, you know, all those disks and the, the 3X replication and all the CPUs and RAM that you're not using, right? Um, so for those types of workloads, um, Warpstream can save a lot of costs also just because there is effectively no more cost-effective way to store data in the cloud than with object storage, right? Um, even within object storage, there's data tiering, there's like infrequent access and there's Glacier and all these other things. But like generally speaking, um, it's really, really hard to beat the object storage cost of um, whatever, roughly two cents per gigabyte, which is like already replicated, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for those types of workloads, um, Warpstream can, can can save a lot of money as well. Um, and you also just have a lot less hardware to deal with um, right. because it's the storage and compute needs can be kind of scaled completely independently. What's your roadmap for, for Kafka compatibility, basically? So when will you be like like a red panda like almost 100 percent compatible yeah it's a good question um right now we have essentially enough of the protocol to, to to write like meaningful applications like you can connect flink to it um you can have custom producers and consumers we support consumer groups stuff like that um stuff that we're still missing that's pretty important is um item potent producers um, we're actually working on that right now. We'll probably have that sometime in the next like two weeks. Um, full Kafka transaction support will probably come um, sometime after that, um, you know, sometime in the next few months, basically. Um, and then once those two things are done, I think the major missing feature is what, like ACLs? Yeah, right, right now, mm -hmm. the, the things that we have no support for are basically the esoteric security related features. Um, everything else is either actively in development or done. Obviously, there might be bugs that we haven't found and fixed mm -hmm. yet because the system is pretty new. But the intention is to get to full compatibility for the major features that people use in their applications within the next three to six months. Oh. That's interesting. Just, uh, I just have to say, I, I just like this <laughs> competition for Confluence to basically bring their prices down, but that's only <laughs> because they're customers yeah. of them. Um, in yeah. the, uh, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. In the uh, distributed cache, um, this this is like, a, sounds like a really critical piece of of a warp stream here, how much, how much can you hold there, and and um, is, is that like a hot set or 
versus cold sets. So how 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 much do you hold? How much data do you usually hold in there? So the cache is actually less important than you would expect. Okay. Um, the the reason for that is because we compact data very shortly after it's written. We the data layout is optimized pretty well at that point. I think we target uh, 16 megabyte IO sizes once compaction is finished. Like the data for a single topic partition, you'll the you know after compaction should be at least 16 megabytes per like pointer essentially that we store in our metadata store. Um, so the like that's pretty that's a pretty decent object size to read out of S3. The cache is useful mostly for the extremely recently written data. So like data that was written within the last say 15 seconds or so, that's when the cache is the most important. Um, and we use memory for the cache on the agents just to avoid like introducing more local disks for people to manage. Um, right. Husky, the system that we worked on previously at, at Datadog had local disks for caching. And you know they weren't too big of a deal to manage, but we had to write some extra code in order to make sure that like the failure of a single local disk did not impact the system overall. Um, so we didn't want to even go there at all with Warpstream. Um, so basically, if you have enough memory on the agents to cache the data that you've written in the last 10 to 15 seconds or so, you will probably be fine. Um, once you're reading data outside of that time window, reading directly from S3 will be reasonably efficient. Hmm. Are you guys in all three clouds or just AWS for now? So uh, the agents can run, they're like object store implementation um, agnostic. Like, So the way it works is the agent support being run in GCP, AWS, uh, Azure, and then they can also be pointed at any S3 compatible blob store. So that includes things like Oracle Cloud, Minio, and R2. Um, so basically you can run the agents in all major cloud providers like today. Um, the uh, And then what's, uh, the other part of that though is that you want like our control plane to be like reasonably close to you to keep latency under control. Um, right now we only offer our cloud control plane in one region, um, but by the end of the year, we'll be offering it um, in several. Yeah, the, because the data transmitted between the agent and our cloud control plane is so small, we can essentially run that in a different cloud provider than the users running the agent in, so long as we are close geographically. That's one of the trade-offs we're making with Workstream anyway is that you're expecting to see a little bit higher latency than you would with the traditional deployment of Kafka. And as a part of that, the additional, let's say 20 milliseconds for you to go from uh, AWS to GCP in the regions that are geographically close to each other just isn't significant. Um, so we, we have a unique advantage there, I think, where we can deploy the control plane anywhere that the customers need it, but it doesn't necessarily need to be multi-cloud. Um, that makes things a little bit easier for, for us. Um, at some point, we may deploy it in multiple clouds just because you know, maybe 
AWS doesn't have a region close to where somebody needs us and we need to deploy in Azure instead because they have a pretty wide footprint. Um, it's well, very there's, there's, there's our company, which is a retailer, and there's a policy, a company policy, not to use AWS. It doesn't mm -hmm. make sense, but it's, <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. We're we're pretty yeah. We're we're familiar with those uh, kinds of policies as well. Um, so, in order to support those enterprises that have uh, policies that they don't want any of their dependencies running in AWS, we can deploy in another cloud. We're not tied to AWS specifically, but that is where we're running the control plane today. Yeah, but the agents can run anywhere. You can put them on a Raspberry Pi in your closet if you want to, right. it doesn't matter. As long as they can talk to something that looks like object storage, they don't care. Uh, we did a test a couple of days ago um, where Ryan ran an agent on his laptop in Chicago, and then I ran one on my laptop in Nashville, and then we pointed them both at like a shared Cloudflare R2 storage bucket, and he could produce in Chicago, and I was reading the data from my agent in Nashville, all going through Cloudflare's R2 object store. Um, so it's it's pretty flexible. Nice. What, what, what kind of tools can I use? Can I use like the typical Kafka command line tools to interface with it? Or okay. yeah, so we use, like, we yeah. test uh, using a few of the like Apache Kafka open source packaged scripts. Like a few of those run in our CI, just because they're helpful to ensure compatibility with more kinds of clients. Uh, but we also run tests with uh, other like language specific bindings. But in general, because we're targeting full feature compatibility with with Kafka, if one of those tools doesn't work, it's probably a bug that you should report to us and we will fix it. There are some things that don't make sense in the context of WordStream. Like there are certain configuration knobs in Kafka that you might want to configure that don't make sense in the context of WorkStream. For example, like the, the Axe uh, configuration for producing data, we're not planning on supporting a mode other than the equivalent of Axe equals all. So even if you were to configure that, we would just ignore it. But for, for things that make sense in the context of WorkStream, we're aiming for 100% compatibility. Yeah, I think there's a, there's like a list of like nine protocol messages in our documentation that are very like specific to the process of managing a physical Kafka cluster. Mm -hmm. Like right now we just don't support them. We might like stub them out one day and just return fake data or something. Um, so there's some parts of the protocol that like Ryan said, literally just don't make sense. But for the most part, uh, we expect that every tool should work. We actually spent a lot of time in the last two weeks adding support for more of the admin administration protocol messages so that um, uh, there's there's these tools like um, Kadek and, and KPOW that are essentially like admin UIs for Kafka. Um, and we wanted to make sure that all of those worked nicely with WorkStream, so. Nice. Um, where, uh, are you able to deploy, say, like, like, let's say, what's, what's your, you know, multi-region strategy. Let's say I, I wanted to, you, you mentioned, you know, Chicago, then Nashville, and you had like a shared bucket. Um, uh, S3, as you said, was, was, was regional. Um, what's your strategy as far as like replicating from say other, you know, 
global regions in the in the world. So right now we don't have any built-in support for this, but the the general plan is to support asynchronous replication between object storage buckets and mm -hmm. then our cloud like this gets a little complicated when you're talking about the distinction of like multi-region for our control plane versus multi-region for your your data yeah. um multi-region for your data would essentially mean replicating between object storage buckets multi-region for the control plane would mean replicating the changes from the metadata of your cluster from one region to another. Both of those are things that we would like to support. The implementation details of like how we do it on the control plane side are not super interesting, but the the idea for replicating the the object storage data is is pretty straightforward. It's mostly just the like copying data from one object storage bucket to the other. It's uh, you can do that in parallel and at some point we just have to acknowledge uh, that you synced the files up to a certain logical position in the on the metadata control plane side so that we can expose the cluster view up to some previous point in history like asynchronous with the um, the other like the primary so to speak cluster there are other modes that we you could we could potentially support like GCP has um, like multi-regional object storage buckets uh -huh. like they're they're meant to be accessed from more than one region i think they're usually constrained to like a a continent um, but they're they're multi-regional that is another another way someone could run workstream with multi-region support like the um those buckets are the gcp buckets that i'm referring to the data is durable like the assumption is that data will be available on you know, multiple of the regions that that bucket is constrained to, so to speak. Um, so we wouldn't have to do any replication there on the the object storage side. We have a we have a lot of options. It's kind of uh, daunting to describe all the potential ways that we could we could do this. But if somebody needed to do it today, the fastest they could probably point Mirror Maker at uh, um, Workstream and do it that way. If somebody really needed it tomorrow, we would we would work with them to make sure Mirror Maker works. But the roadmap is, uh, you know, there's a lot of different options for us to go down the roadmap depending on the specific cost, uh, latency, and like RPO goals for the the user. What's um, I'm assuming there are some use cases that you have in mind when you build WorkStream. Um, can you kind of Go over those use cases. Yeah the 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 place where we also, think and also when not to use WarpStream in your opinion. Yeah, sure. Um, the the place where we think WarpStream makes the most sense right now, like we're, we're at the current stage where we're at as a company and the technology, um, and it's also the space that Ryan and I know best is um, basically all these use cases where you have extremely high volumes of data. Um, but the data is like fundamentally call it like low value per byte. Um, so things, uh, not to say the data is not important, but when you think of things about like, again, like Datadog's use case for like logging, if you're a um, security company that's ingesting uh, 
machine telemetry, um, IoT data, all these things where you essentially have a fire hose of data and where you know the cost to process each byte is basically margin impacting for your business. Um, we think Warpstream can deliver like a ton of value um, in those use cases. Um, in terms of like when to not use, um, when Warpstream's not a good fit right now, uh, the kind of obvious one is um, cases where you have like very low latency needs, right? Like if you're expecting produce requests to terminate in, you know, 30 milliseconds, um, you know, you're, you're not going to get that with uh, Warpstream today. Um, we actually have some uh, some plans to make essentially a low latency version of Warpstream in the future that still has no local disks. Um, we're not, don't have a ton of details to share on that like today, but we have plans for that. But um, today we don't really have a good answer for you for that. Okay. What about your go-to-market? So is it just um, just a SaaS offering, or or do you just or is it also do you plan to go to go open source to some degree, or what's your goal? The the software is not open source. Our our take on that is that um, the protocol is like standardized, and so Warpstream, in our view, is we're not open source in the same way that Confluent is not open source if that makes sense, like the core technology and all of their internal stuff, all right, but the protocol itself is standardized. Um, that said, in terms of our, our, our go-to-market, um, one thing that we're really focused on is this completely self-serve free tier. Um, so you can go today and like sign up on the Warpstream website and install, you know, three Warpstream agents in your cloud environment and start streaming, you know, 50 megabytes per second through your agents and you don't have to talk to us and that's free. Um, and so um, this kind of like bring your own cloud, uh, you can sign up yourself and run the agents however you want in your own cloud account. Um, we think that's going to be like a big part of basically our, our initial um, go to market. Um, and that's something we want to basically have around um, forever. Um, we actually like, We spent an inordinate amount of time like designing the system so that we could offer that like free tier um, in an extremely like cost-effective way. Um, like everything about our control plane is like designed such that like we can just have people, we can host metadata for users clusters for essentially for free and that doesn't cost us a ton of money. Um, so I, I think that's kind of our answer to that it's like not open source is we have this free tier and it's the same protocol that you're, you're kind of used to with all the other providers. Um, in terms, of, in terms yeah. of actually making money though, uh, <laughs> we we're like, you can contact us for enterprise pricing for workloads that don't fit within the free tier. Um, there are a few dimensions to that problem. One of them is, do you want to run the control plane yourself? Uh, there are some customers for which that is extremely important. We've, we don't have a packaged up ready to use version of that today, but uh, people have been asking us for it. So we'll probably create one of those soon for, you know, the most security and privacy conscious enterprises. Like our control plane doesn't actually have access to any of your topic data, but some people don't even want us to know the topic names. So we have to we have to be a bit flexible there. 
Um, well, they also just they don't want to make holes in their VPC. Yeah, they don't. You know, they don't want to communicate anything outside of their, their VPC. There's yeah. lots of uh, lots of organizations like that. Um, but the the enterprise uh, offering for for Warpstream is designed to be flexible enough that you can replace basically all of your Kafka workloads if they fit within our you know parameters that we talked about about latency. Basically, that's that's about it. We're we're going for full full replacement um, within the enterprise of Apache Kafka. You guys, um, maybe in the future, do you guys foresee yourselves being like part of the like the data lake, or or let's say like uh, you know a lake house, for instance? You know how do you, they like Delta Live tables, for instance? They have tables that act like topics in in Kafka, and and so I see you guys fitting really nicely in there because you know obviously that's also on an object store. You have more of like a uh, compat compatibility with Kafka. Um, uh, uh, what's your what's your story or, or thoughts around being native into in a, in a lake house? So today we don't have any direct uh, integrations or plans with these other tools like Iceberg or or Delta Lake, mm -hmm. but. One of the products that we're exploring, offering in the future, would basically pay. It's it would connect your Warpstream cluster to your S3 bucket and deliver at fairly low latency, large-ish files. Let's say 64 to 128 megabytes worth of data from your Warpstream cluster in a in a layout that would be nice to consume with other tools like Trino or, or Spark or Flink. Um, we think that we can, a, a lot of people are using Kafka for workloads that look roughly like, I want to receive a batch of JSON from the internet, do some light processing on it, and have it end up in my data lake on the other side. There's a lot of workloads that fit into that category. We think that's more than like half of all the bytes going through Kafka is something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, some, yeah, something basically where you want to receive some data that is of questionable value in terms of you know each data point, but you want to make sure enough of the data points get all the way into the the end system, whether it's you know, your Snowflake or um, some open source uh, data tool like like Spark or Flink, and Warpstream is designed to make those workloads pretty efficient. If you were going to use the Kafka protocol today, it would be pretty efficient uh, as the, you know, the pipe in between the the internet and your your data warehouse. But we could offer a higher level product that essentially abstracted away all of the Kafka ness of that thing, like because Kafka is almost just an implementation detail in a lot of those systems at that point. It's just used to durably store the data for a period of time and buffer it so that you can write large files to S3. Um, we'd like to, to offer that higher level product where you can send data to Warpstream and it will end up on the other side in your S3 bucket in reasonably sized files and maybe an iceberg table format 
for your micro batch quote unquote processing that you'd want to do with another tool um, or just for direct querying later in your data warehouse. Yeah, if we if we look ahead a, a few years, like I don't think we view ourselves as like a Kafka company. Like our goal is to make data streaming as easy and cost effective as possible and and open it up, lower the barrier entry to bringing new use cases to these low latency streaming um, applications. And so um, the industry is heavily standardized around the Kafka protocol. And so like the first thing we want to do is bring something to people who are already in that ecosystem and make their lives easier and reduce their costs and and give them a more flexible architecture um but like long term we're like we think of the mission as the company is to make streaming easier and more cost effective um and that we think will will extend far beyond just the the kafka protocol any any plans to go open source any thoughts no, one thing which is very interesting here, I think, especially for, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of building this uh, more streaming like big data mesh. So um, that was the book Hubert was writing or has written also. Um, because I think one of the main reasons why Kafka isn't used as as the uh, backbone of data of a data mesh implementation is cost, basically. it's. Um, it's just so much more expensive than the data lake. And if you can make that happen, if you can, then you could basically have streaming as your, you could even have it as your signal source of truth in a way. And then you could still plug, a, um, take some topics and offer them as parquet files, whatever, so that they, uh, that's, ex that's exactly what we want to be able people to can do it. So, yeah, we want to be yeah. able to go into an existing organization that's using Kafka, um, like open source or, or otherwise have Warpstream slot in as the <clears throat> Kafka protocol compatible thing, but then offer them the ability like, okay, this team can consume this topic as Kafka using Flink, and this team can, can, can consume it as Parquet exactly. files with yeah. bucket notifications in S3, and this team can, and we want to basically yeah, enable that. Um, yeah, uh, and so the, the, the Kafka protocol support is, we're hoping long-term to be kind of a sort of bridge between I don't want quote unquote old and the new and and to allow different teams to do different things and fit into the ecosystem, but also enable new things and, and stuff like that. Yeah, so I think I think this even though this data mesh uh, term has been overused <laughs> in the last years, mm -hmm. but I think this this could be a good um, a good marketing for you basically, where you could say um, you can really build that now because it's 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 cost effective. It's it's um, Nothing holds you back, and you can you can connect your also your operational systems, and it's also an interesting take on what um, I thought. Uh, what I'm still thinking is that that the streaming databases, which we are um, writing the book about now, could be another enabler for data for streaming data mesh. So that's kind of my my overall goal, I would say. So because that's what I'm building at my company now, it's trying to bring most of the data onto the stream and if you can also persist it for a longer time then because it's just cheaper this would be fantastic actually and then you can i mean and the great thing is that you can still stay batch compatible in a way so you can still say oh if you want this topic as a parquet file take it or as mm. whatever it's really cool yeah we yeah, I, that it's the the data is stored in s3 
as like the enabler for for all of those diff like wide variety of use cases because even let's say that we had to make an extra copy of the data in in s3 in order to facilitate the you know you somebody wants to consume it with the kafka protocol and then somebody also wants parquet files if for whatever reason we can't just standardize on parquet internally making an extra copy of the data is not expensive in s3 um mm. because we're going to like the way that we're going to deliver these files to s3 they're going to compress really well because data for a given Kafka partition has data for similar keys. So like hopefully the, the compression will be very good there. So making an extra copy of the data will be pretty affordable, especially if the thing that you want to do is you just want to keep it forever. You can let it tear down to Iceberg using, or sorry, uh, to Glacier using intelligent uh, access, the um, S3 feature, the equivalent and the other clouds. And you can let the cloud provider take care of the data tiering all the way down to you know the cheapest storage possible if the thing that you're going to do is store your data forever but you don't need to read it most of the time which is how if you yeah. use stream as the source of truth that's probably how it would work is you'd be rarely consuming the extremely old data um and there'd be okay. a, a cost uh um cost trade-off curve as you as data gets older yep, yep, yep. that's cool that's an interesting new perspective actually the um i'm seeing a lot a lot more of uh companies kind of starting to converge the idea of like streaming and batch workloads right um you can almost kind of say that you're doing the same thing but even though s3 is just a storage layer for you guys um enabling others to read from that you know from a, as a parquet file those files is you're doing the same work of converging um uh those two paradigms right um what's what's your take on that like if you think of like like us uh, like streaming our, our our book streaming databases uh, again that's another convergence of uh of uh of processing of workloads uh streaming it in a database which typically holds data at, at, at rest right so you have you have both um can you talk about maybe how what you think about that? How how that that some of the systems out there are starting to converge in 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 those aspects, and and is that one of the? Uh, it doesn't sound like it was one of the major reasons why you created Warpstream. I think Warpstream was there is really just to help make Kafka accessible, the, the Kafka protocol accessible, streaming accessible to to many, and make it easier. Um, but I'd love to see if you have any thoughts on this convergence or have you seen it or, or does it even matter to you, <laughs> I guess? Yeah. So we came from Datadog where there were a pretty wide variety of use cases around streaming and batch processing of data. It, we, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, the way that, people use Datadog as a product is essentially they have lots of streaming quote unquote queries that they want to run, which are for alerting, like monitoring their, uh, you know, they want to alert based on a metric crossing some threshold. That's kind of a streaming query. Um, and then they also have these long historical analyses. They want to do querying logs over the last month. Um, so we, we think that both of those use cases are 
important to support for people. It's important to make both of those workloads uh, efficient. And the, the implementation details of the system that allows you to perform them are, um, they don't look so dissimilar from each other. A streaming query is essentially an optimization of running a batch query uh, for data that you're going to add to over time. Like the, the internals of how you process a streaming query and a batch query are not, are not that different. Um, so we, we think that Workstream, you know, some of the parts of the higher level product that we want to offer um, around, for, for example, if we could build, you know, in those 64 and 128 megabyte files that we deliver to, um, to your S3 bucket in Parquet Iceberg format, if one of the things that we can do along the way while the data is going through Workstream is build statistics for those files, like what are the minimum and maximum values for each column in your data set. Um, th those types of processing, like pre-processing features that make your later queries more efficient or sorting your data, for example. Um, so that, you know, they're the, the, all the uh, records for the same user ID are next to each other in the, in those output files, those techniques. Or, or deduplicating it. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's lots of things that we can do along the way that we think will benefit both streaming and batch use cases. Um, so we, we want to ensure that like we're, we're, we're kind of in a way going to be agnostic to whether somebody wants to process their data in batch or streaming, like they could just mm -hmm. be using Kafka as a dumb pipe to enable some later batch process or they're using it because they're actually performing streaming queries. We want to be agnostic to those, but we think that the, we can provide value by making both workloads more efficient through some smart pre-processing of the data that people would need to do anyway, um, like statistics and um, projections and filters that happen at the stream level before they even reach your compute engine. Nice. So um, I guess created myself a, an account <laughs> and work for you. Uh, looks pretty simple, right? Like you have your 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 virtual clusters, and then you can start creating your topics. Um, I love the simplicity of it. Um, and yeah, we're, just, we're, we're not yeah. front end people, so we had to keep it pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it should be as you know, just as the simple, right? To be able to start streaming, they're just topics in the cloud, right? Um, that's all, that's all you need. Um, uh, super excited to uh, to uh, start playing with you. Um, uh, probably should start wrapping up. Where can we find you guys? Um, what can we look forward to? What's next? Um, are you speaking at any conferences or anything? Um, this is your time. Cool. Um, you should definitely check out our website, warpstream.com, if you're if you're listening. Um, our documentation has a ton of good info, and you can just sign up for our website on there. Um, if you have questions for us, we'd love to see you in our Slack. Um, we've got a kind of small growing community in there. Um, and Ryan and I um, and some of our other um, engineers are, are really active in there, um, helping people like set up Warpstream, any issues they run into. Um, you know, we really are just looking to connect with people who are interested in what we're building um, and help them as much as we can. Would you want to add something? Yeah. Uh... All I wanted to add is that our 
company Twitter account is warpstream underscore labs. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, um, we're not speaking at any conferences soon, but um, we will surely be in the future to evangelize warpstream to everyone. Um, so cool. if you follow us on Twitter, we'll, we'll keep you posted there about where we'll be. So you're not you're not you're not going to um, current this year yet. Maybe next year. I think um, I think we will probably attend. We just won't have a booth or be presenting right. anything. Um, we're pretty heads down these days, um, building product and stuff. But I think we'll do more talking uh, next year. Cool. Um, that's it for me. Unless Ralph, you got any more questions? Where does that maybe? I'm so how how big is your development team? moment it's pretty small uh right now it's three and will be five by the end of october um like we have two outstanding people who are joining in october um we'll probably be yeah keep it at roughly five till the end of the year and then um over the course of next year i'd, I'd like to grow to 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. yeah that's great um, so. Yeah, if you guys any, have any questions, we'd love to, you know, um, talk more if you'd like. Um, just reach out um, to Ralph and I on LinkedIn, and uh, we'll we'll maybe do it again sometime. Thanks, Richard okay. and Ryan. Um, good luck, and great. Um, start playing with your product right now. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for inviting us out. Yeah, yeah. See you guys. Okay. Thank you. Bye. -bye.